Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. We are thrilled. We have two guests today, <laughs> Dr. Lori Sikafuse in Vegas. Lori, how are you doing? Good. How are you? No, you're not gambling. And attorney Matt Moffitt from Atlanta. Matt, how are things going in the greater uh, Atlanta area? Well, we're involved in a sheltering and remote access practice of law. Yeah, a lot of, by the way, have you been, have you been forced to do a lot of virtual um, depositions? And if so, how, how are those going? Well, we've done more mediations using Zoom or the, uh, I guess it's the Microsoft platform. Uh, we've done hearings uh, using those systems. We have not done as many mediations with those. Yeah, I can imagine it could be uh, a headache. It's got to be different because that human factor is not there. But we've been doing a lot of virtual witness trainings. Those have been very successful. And I think they're probably going to continue to go forward until things get, uh, things get better from a public health standpoint. Right. Hey, Matt, how many emails have you gotten from corporations that are guaranteeing you and ensuring you that your health and safety is their top priority? <laughs> well, I can't say too many. I, I don't know exactly how to answer that. I, I get a lot of emails from a lot of suppliers reminding me that they're there and willing and able and can assist in a safe manner. I've been getting worn out with these emails, usually from it's the hotel chains and the airlines trying to make sure that you're not, you know, panicking and, and they're taking a beating right now. So they're going to do everything they can to win back their customers. Let's start off with this topic of uh, nuclear verdicts. Um, sure. An alarming trend, but really nothing new. Uh, we called these runaway juries uh, back in the you know 80s and 90s. Uh, Matt, talk a little bit about what you're seeing, particularly in your area in Atlanta, because you, you have a pretty aggressive plaintiff's bar there. Have, have there been some uh, pretty eye-opening verdicts in, in your area in, in the last year or two? I would say too many. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the plaintiff's bar is extremely well organized, extremely well funded. Uh, they're in communication with each other. They support each other, encourage each other, sometimes even fund each other's cases. I think that's the latest trend that I understand is occurring. And they've been very successful. So we have to ask ourselves, why is that? What's going on with respect to evaluation of cases or getting cases properly prepared to give the best defensive presentation for the best outcome at trial. Something's going on. Why are these cases not resolving for reasonable amounts of money and we're seeing nuclear verdicts? That's the question. And a lot of nuclear settlements that don't get the publication that the verdicts get. Lori, talk to us a little bit. Now, Lori, you know, litigation psychologist, uh, is in the process, Matt, you'll be very excited about this, in the process of collecting some new data on juror perceptions. Lori, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and, and what we're trying to do at Courtroom Sciences to learn more about how this pandemic has influenced your kind of your average everyday juror? Sure. So we are currently collecting data from, I believe it's six different venues, actually. We're doing uh, LA, we're doing Atlanta. Uh, for you, Matt, we've got Chicago, we've got Houston, and a couple of other judicial hellholes. Um, pretty brief survey, but really collecting prospective jurors' attitudes about the coronavirus situation, 
how and if it's changing their attitudes towards various corporations, various industries, including, you know, transportation and big box retailers and all of those things. Because the big question that we're getting is, oh, well, you know, is this whole crisis going to cause her to have more positive perceptions of transportation industries and, and trucking professionals and things like that? We're also looking to the extent that we can using survey data at actual changes in their decision-making processes and their attitudes. Because I think right now with the COVID-19 crisis, courts are going to open eventually. You know, it could be a month, it could be two months, it could be three months, but you know, at that time, this whole crisis isn't going to be gone. It's not going to go away. Jurors are still going to be in like state of stress. They're still going to be in a state of uncertainty. You know, prior research shows that actually these kinds of crises make people more likely to be rule followers um, and adhere to rules and things like that, which sounds like a really good opportunity for reptile approaches. So we need to not only assess what these jurors' attitudes are and how their attitudes towards certain industries are changing, but also kind of how they're making decisions right now and what kind of a state that they're going to be in when they go back to court. Uh, very, very good uh, points. So, Matt, going forward, what type of adjustments do you think you maybe have to make in Vordir in your jury selection process? Because some of the questions, and we consult with you on a lot of trials, some of the kind of standard questions uh, may not be sufficient going forward. You're going to have to come up with some new questions to see how this pandemic has influenced uh Jurors, what, what kind of adjustments do you think you may have to make? A more exhaustive jury selection process, I would think. We need to find out about the predispositions and the opinions and the attitudes and potential biases. I think we need experienced psychologists like you and Lori involved in the process with a written juror questionnaire. I think we do need to do some social media vetting before or during the process. And I think we need to follow up carefully so that we can elicit, you know, just the honest, true opinions of people that might be adverse to our positions in the case or otherwise might result in a judge saying, you know, this probably is not the best case suited for this particular juror. So it's just going to involve more time and it's going to involve more expense, but we've got to do it. If we don't do it, I think we're going to end up with more nuclear verdicts. Yeah. Now, do, you see, do you see judges, Matt? maybe being sympathetic to that cause and actually allowing more time for jury selection or, or the opposite because there's going to be this damn log jam because of the delay, they're going to want to expedite jury. This could get dangerous really fast. Where do you see it going in your particular venue? Well, the one compromise might be if we shrink the jury pool and we shrink the number of jurors that are required to sit on cases in Georgia, you have a right to 12 if you ask for it, but that doesn't mean that, the legislature might not change that uh, appropriately such that maybe you end up with six. So that by that, I mean, you can take the same amount of time because you have half as many, so to speak. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Now here in Florida, uh, they have a, they have six person juries. They have them in Indiana as well. Mm -hmm. I think Ohio is eight. Lori, from a litigation psychology perspective, What's the pros and the cons of having 12 versus six? And how, how, do you, how do you see that, particularly from a jury selection strategy, is that a good or a bad thing, particularly if some states have to temporarily go to a, a six or an eight person system? I typically say more is better. 
um, because you have less chance of polarization, but it's gonna, it's really gonna depend. It's gonna depend on what side you're on. It's gonna depend on the case. It's gonna depend on whether there's a requirement that the jury is unanimous. And that's something that we really need to evaluate on a case by case basis. Well, changes are coming and I think it's probably gonna be venue by venue and we'll just have to stay tuned and see who gets it right, see who gets it wrong. Now, Matt, you and I have done countless uh, publications, um, uh, CLEs, webinars, speeches on the plaintiff reptile theory. Uh, what what are the updates on your, because I know it's always, well, it was born in Atlanta, right? Um, yeah. It's still very active uh, up there and, and nationally. Have you seen, do you think maybe COVID-19 um, makes that movement even stronger going forward? Do you think they're going to get even more aggressive as court systems start to open up? I think it depends on the defendant. I mean, if the defendant is in the emergency response or healthcare field or industry, maybe reptile will not be as effective, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think what Lori was saying before is, is true. People who are safety conscious are more activated to be more safety conscious in light of safety considerations that we're now all concerned with in light of this COVID-19. So I don't see reptile going away. It's been very effective uh, by the plaintiffs. It's extremely effective if you haven't properly prepared your 30B6 yeah. representative or your safety director, for example, for these loaded up questions that are really more form over substance and they're designed to elicit sound bites. So I think they're appropriate professional ways to deal with reptile but it takes time, it takes contemplation, it takes assistance uh, with witness uh, preparation and education. And uh, I don't see enough of that right now, frankly. We need more of that. Have, Matt, have, have your clients like figured it out that they're gonna have to be more aggressive earlier in cases to really truly protect themselves and defend themselves? Or do you still see a certain proportion of clients that just they don't want to put in the prep time or the or the the financial investment into doing things like focus groups and mock trials. We do a lot with you. Have you been getting much pushback, or do you see clients maybe becoming more open minded in this regard? Well, I see two things: one good, one not so good. In in the cases that I seem to be handling now, they're more higher risk type of cases, bigger exposure type of cases, and the decision makers, the ones that are going to be paying the money, so to speak are much more open to putting in the work and investing in the case for the best possible resolution or outcome. All right, I'm seeing that and that's good. The challenge is now, well, somebody over here can do it for a whole lot less. Yeah, and what I don't see appreciation for is the fact that somebody over here doing it for a whole lot less is not as qualified and not, as do and not doing it in a satisfactory manner to make it worthwhile or yield um, the reliable results. So that's good and that's <laughs> bad. Yeah, Lori, since, um, yeah, Lori has a PhD in psychology. Can you talk about, Lori, about research methodology and about how it's such a garbage in, garbage out system and when you start cutting corners, how that can maybe give you some, some misleading results and then poor decision making on the file later on? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, when individuals want to go with the cheaper option, they're going to get what they pay for, right? And that's 
part of the reason why you're seeing some of these nuclear verdicts because yeah. they're getting predictive and reliable results or even nuclear settlements, right? Because they're doing this junk research and they're, they're getting false predictions and assessments of what the case is actually worth. With these mock trials, you do need somebody who's rigorously trained in research methodology that's a PhD in one of the social sciences. Your recruitment methods for jurors are gonna matter. These individuals are the ones that know how to ask survey questions, how to sample things, how to design research appropriately, and how to analyze it, it appropriately. If you don't have a strong background in research and methodology, you're just not gonna be able to do it. Um, so that's super important. Something's cheaper, you just threw away your money you know, on junk research. So, I mean, that's more of a waste of money to me than actually paying for the right kind of professionals to give results. I totally agree. I think that's where some of the clients struggle, Matt. It's not the, should I do the jury research or not? It's the buyer beware. <laughs> they don't know how to choose between vendors. Uh, often, it's, it's great when they let you pick or they let you vet uh, the vendors, but if they're going to put cost over quality, uh, doesn't that put you in a pretty bad position as trial counsel if you know you're getting garbage? Absolutely. Because then more or less, it's, it's me being the one to give them the results, and I'm not the PhD psychologist. If they don't give me somebody qualified that conducts a you know, reliable experiment to yield reliable results, then it's basically just your lawyer you know, providing the conclusions when your lawyer's not as qualified as Laurie, a PhD psychologist is, to give us those conclusions. So it's challenging for the lawyer. It really doesn't do me much good. Very good point. Uh, final question, then we'll wrap up. And this is probably the most important question we have. Well, actually, two questions, Matt. A, is there going to be a college football season? And B, can Georgia please – they need to win it all here because you, you've, been, you've been through a lot of pain here. Ugh. Now my tar heels are in rebuilding format. Well, that's a whole different discussion. But what do you see? Are you hearing anything from the Alumni Association? Because what would the Southeast do without SEC football? I mean, my family wants to kill me right now. And then maybe I want to kill them, too, because we're all making each other crazy. If I had some college football I knew was coming up, I think I may be a little bit less stressed out. Well, I tell you, we need college football. We need SEC football. And you know, I want to say go dogs, but since 1980, we've seen too many SEC schools win the national championship too many times. And I don't know if it's more depressing that, that Saban and Alabama's won it, what, five or six times, uh, or that LSU has won it three times with three different coaches. I know. We just want one. <laughs> That's all we want. And we've been number two too many times. And we're really ready for number one. I think we're on the right track with Kirby Smart. He seems to have it all together. But, boy, is it competitive in the SEC. I mean, you can get knocked off by any team any given week. And to run the table in the SEC, oh, what a challenge that is. So, yes, I think there will be a football season. Now, here's what I've heard. I've heard it's going to happen. And then I've heard it's going to happen, but it's going to start late. But I've not heard it's not going to happen. Now, I think they're going to play, and they're going to play on TV. And then the question becomes, how many are going to be allowed into the stadium? And then how many are going to show up after that? Com complete nightmare. And, and, and Lori needs college football so her town can open back up and people can start gambling and throwing their money uh, on, these, on these teams and watching games. Well, thank you, both of you, for being on the podcast. I thought this was great. Matt, we'll be in touch soon. Let us know what you need. 
Lori, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Lori. Thanks. Thanks, Matt and Bill.